You are listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 62. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. Chris Lester here, coming to you from the hot and steamy environs of Madison, Wisconsin. I've got a fresh dose of new fiction for your listening pleasure, so slide in your earbuds, crank up the air conditioning, and let's get started. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 18 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, stop now. This story began back in Episode 24, so you'll want to start at the beginning to make sure you don't miss any of the exciting twists and turns. The following recap will contain spoilers, so consider yourself warned. Metamore City Police Detectives Catherine Katane and David Silverleaf have failed in their attempt to protect the young noblewoman, Sefi Hinlasos. Sefi was targeted for capture by the Vampire Crime Syndicate because her recent exposure to the power of the Telvari Rift has transformed her body and given her extraordinary psychic abilities. Malcolm Ardvalos, the Vampire Prince, wants that power for himself, and he intends to study Sefi in order to understand how to replicate what the Rift has done to her. Kate and David were trapped by a group of vampire thugs led by Fisher, the tall, dapper, and sadistic vampire who has become Malcolm's new top enforcer. Fisher has a powerful artifact in his possession, a staff with a black stone that can conjure powerful evocations made of death mana. Fisher also had a double agent on his side, a human police officer named Miles, who trained his gun on Kate when her back was turned. Between them, Fisher and Miles held David and Kate's lives in their hands, and they compelled the two detectives to surrender, with the promise that Fisher would spare their lives. The vampires handcuffed Kate and David, took most of their weapons and David's spell reagents, then kidnapped Sefi and placed her in Fisher's skimmer. Fisher tried to use his domination gaze on Kate, intending to break her and turn her into a thrall. To their mutual astonishment, though, Fisher was unable to break through Kate's defenses. According to Fisher, that means that Kate either isn't completely human, or has some kind of defensive mutation that protects her, much like the telepaths are protected. Realizing that he will be unable to turn Kate to his purposes, Fisher decides that he will dispose of both detectives together. He will keep his word, but only in the most technical sense. While he and his goons will not harm Kate and David, He has every confidence that the hunters will finish them off on his behalf. Kate and David are hooded and thrown into the hatch of a skimmer, then driven down to some dark, stinking place at street level. Kate is still trying to figure out where they are when the vampire carrying her lifts her overhead and hurls her into empty space. She falls. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 18 Kate landed flat on her stomach in a puddle of sticky, stinking mud. 
Nothing felt broken, but it was hard enough to knock the wind out of her. The mud plastered the hood to her face. She rolled onto her back, put her head between her knees, and scraped the sodden fabric against her legs until it came loose. David landed beside her a moment later. The thug who carried him must have thrown him against the wall of the pit, because he came sliding down the side, wriggling like an eel. He managed to shake off his hood on the way down, but the gag was tightly tied and stayed in place. He landed on his feet, then bent double, desperately sucking in air around the gag. Hold on, David, Kate said. She could barely see him. A dull red glow came from somewhere overhead, painting a world of bloody shadows on shadows. She shuffled on her knees until she reached the wall of the pit, then pushed herself against it until she was standing again. Come over here to the wall, she said. David did so, pressing up against her side. The whiff of his subtle elven musk was like a breath of fresh air in this awful place. She mouthed around the back of his neck until she found the knot of his gag with her teeth. The fabric was tightly tied and covered in the foul-tasting mud, but after a few minutes of tugging and spitting, she managed to work it loose. Thank God, David gasped, when the gag finally came free. You're welcome, Kate said wearily, spitting again to try to get the mud out of her mouth. Can you reach my spare set of cuff keys? They're in the second pouch left of my belt buckle. Of course. David backed up against her, fingers searching, and Kate shifted her hips to bring the little reagent pouch within reach. David opened the snap fastener and pulled out the keys, which she had hidden beneath a plastic baggie filled with some truly disgusting-looking black mushrooms. Kate turned carefully around, her feet slipping and squelching in the mud, and brought her wrists up to meet David's fingers. A moment later, she was free, and she returned the favor for David. Her wrists ached where the metal had dug into them, and she rubbed at the skin absently as David pocketed the cuffs. "'Can you see anything?' she asked. "'Not much,' he admitted. He turned around, and Kate could dimly see his head tilt back as he looked up at the hole they'd been thrown into. "'We're not getting back up that way. There's nothing to hold on to.' Kate grimaced. "'Got any more of those miracle seeds?' "'No.' They took everything. The elf was controlling his anger well, but Kate could still feel it under the surface. Not because of the reagents, those could be replaced easily enough, though she was sure some of them would be expensive. But the vampires had suborned a police officer and kidnapped Lady Sephira, and David wasn't about to let that go. Nor was Kate. They'll pay for this, partner, she said quietly. I promise you that. From somewhere in the darkness came a cry, something shrill, metallic, and alien. It echoed off the unseen walls, disguising its direction and distance. The sound of it sent shivers down Kate's spine. What in the nine hells was that? she whispered. David turned away from the wall to the spot where the shadows were darkest. We need light, as bright as you can make it. A sick feeling grew in her belly. Won't that attract whatever's down here? It might, but they will also fear it, and the darkness gives them too great an advantage. Never face a predator on its own terms. A predator, 
Kate had had her suspicions about where they were, but she hadn't wanted to think about it. Hunter's Hollow. Oh, gods. The bastards threw us under Trent Tower. She was suddenly very conscious of her missing gear. She could do magic without her Arthana, but it would be a lot slower and harder to focus. She felt vulnerable, exposed, naked, and no one knows where we are. She tried to focus, to channel her mana reserves into a mage light. Immediately her headache returned in force, and her gut seemed to twist itself double inside her. The mana she was shaping spilled out invisibly into the earth, wasted. Damn it! Her voice shook with fear and frustration. Come on, come on! She reached for the power again, but this time she couldn't even begin the process. It felt like someone had jabbed a pair of knives through her temples. Her knees began to shake. Oh, gods, we're going to die. We're going to die down here in the dark because I couldn't cast a fucking mage light. David's hand gripped her shoulder, steadying her. Courage, Catherine. Then he raised his head and began to sing. His voice was warm, strong, and steady, and as the words rang through the air, Kate felt a surge of hope filling her heart. There seemed to be other voices joining in David's song, bright and encouraging ones, coming from someplace at once far away and as close as her heartbeat. In that unseen chorus, she felt strength return to her, and the fear and pain receded, not gone completely, but small enough to handle. She reached inside herself, called forth her power, and cast her mage light into the air. Instead of her usual blue-green glow, it shone with the rich, warm light of the sun. She looked at David in amazement. What kind of spell was that? David's eyes glittered in the light of her miniature sun, and he favored her with a small smile. It's not a spell. It's a prayer. Kate looked up at the light, then back at her partner. Some prayer. David's smile broadened into a quick grin. Come on, let's find a way out of here. Kate grinned back, pulled out her holdout pistol and a boot knife, tossed the blade to David, and followed him into the darkness. Morgan looked at the monstrous form of Lord Ezekiel, crouched in the revolving door between them and Julia Matthias. She glanced over at Misty Holloway, who was squaring off against him like a duelist sizing up her opponent before a match. 
See, this is why I love simple plans, Morgan said under her breath. Misty narrowed her eyes at Ezekiel. Why's that? Because when they get shot to hell, you don't feel like you've wasted much time. Dr. Ashland was looking like the proverbial deer in headlights. Lord Ezekiel? she asked, sounding faint. I... what's happened to you? Morgan turned and looked her straight in the eyes. Her domination gaze latched on to the doctor's will and held her there. Run. Find the Baron. Tell him what's happened. Go. Dr. Ashland ran, her hooves clacking like high heels on the tile floor. Misty smirked, though the expression didn't reach her eyes. Step out of the way, Zeke. Julie needs help, and we've already got your dad's permission to take her. Ezekiel shook his head as a nictitating membrane flashed over his huge black eyes. You're not taking my girlfriend anywhere, especially not the damned Lightbringers. Misty's lip curled into a sneer. She reached up and pulled off her illusion amulet, exposing her fiendish form in all its terrifying, monstrous beauty. Her long, heavy tail uncoiled from where she'd wrapped it around her body, stretching out behind her to improve her balance. She bared her fangs at Ezekiel and flexed the claws on her hands and feet. Ezekiel Kapler, you are a greedy, jealous, paranoid, sexist prick. You don't own Julie. You don't know what she needs, what she wants, and you certainly don't know what's best for her. Your say in this decision is exactly zero. Now either get the fuck out of my way, or I swear by Suspira's tits I will move you myself. Morgan stared at Misty, then back at Ezekiel. Silence hung in the air for a long moment. Then Ezekiel laughed. <laughs> You'll move me? You? <laughs> You stupid, egomaniacal bitch. Did you get that line from one of your piece-of-shit movies? Now, see, I don't think you understand the situation here. You went to the rift and got turned into an extra from Escape from the Ninth Hell. Or maybe Daedra down and dirty. Whereas I... He stretched out his arms, and two matching submachine guns materialized in his hands. I got some real power. He leveled the guns at the two women, grinning his nightmare smile. So go ahead, Misty. Move me. I would love to see you try. Misty smiled, a cold and feral grin. Okay. Then she casually raised a hand, pointed her fingers at Ezekiel, and closed them into a fist. There was a loud crack. Ezekiel screamed, and the submachine guns fell from his hands, which were now hanging limp from a spot halfway up his forearms. Morgan could see the jagged ends of Radius and Ulna poking through the oily black skin. The submachine guns changed direction in mid-flight, arcing away from Ezekiel to land at Misty's feet. Ezekiel stared, open-mouthed, shock warring with agony on his monstrous face. How? 
Misty shrugged one shoulder. The first rule of celebrity, Zeke, honey. You never let the people see everything. They only think they do. She gestured again, and her telekinesis seized him bodily and threw him down the hallway. He flew a hundred meters, bounced off the ceiling, smashed into the floor, and tumbled ass over tea kettle until he struck the back of the elevator, whose doors had already opened to receive him. The guards waiting beside the elevator looked inside at Ezekiel's crumpled form, then turned and looked back down the long hallway at Misty. She'd slipped her amulet back on, and stood with one leg crossed in front of the other, one index finger pressed to her bottom lip. "'Golly,' she said in a high-pitched ingenue voice. Morgan recognized it from Misty's role in boarding school bordello. "'There sure is something strange going on here.' The guards looked back at Ezekiel, at Misty, then at each other. Then, wisely, they fled. Whether from fear of Misty or just her acting, Morgan wasn't sure. She looked down at the submachine guns. Where did he pull those from, anyway? They looked like they'd been used before, though not, she hoped, by Ezekiel. I don't think we can afford to wait for that extra bag of saline, she said. Me either, Misty said. This place is going straight to the fourth hell as soon as somebody finds Zeke. They went through the revolving door and stepped into the refrigerated chamber beyond. Misty took one of Julia's hands in hers. She's hot, but I don't think she's going to set the upholstery on fire. She looked up at the tubes and wires connecting the unconscious woman to the machines. Do you know what to do with all this? Of course, my dear. Give me just a minute. Morgan set to work disconnecting electrodes and switching off monitoring equipment. A swirl of shadow surrounded her. I told you! Ugly black tentacles wrapped tight around Morgan's arms and legs. You can't have her! A spinning, churning sense of vertigo, and then there was open sky above her, and the glittering lights of the city all around. Ezekiel Kapler stood atop his father's tower and held her over the edge, four tentacles stretching her body into a rigid X. His snapped arm bones appeared to have reset themselves, and the oily black skin was oozing back into place around the sites of the wounds. A cold wind blew through the upper levels of the city, throwing her hair into her face. Morgan was strong for a vampire. She pulled her arms in toward her chest, and the tentacles, perforce, came with them. She dug in the claws of each hand to the tentacle wrapped around the opposite wrist, then twisted until the suckers let go and she was the one holding him. "'Blood and ashes, will you stop being such an idiot, child?' Ezekiel laughed, but now Morgan detected a ragged edge of hysteria in his voice. <laughs> oh, the children's games are so much fun! Let's play my favorite, King of the Hill! He teleported back half a meter from the ledge, but this time he left Morgan suspended over a kilometer of empty air. Back to the bottom! Bye-bye! Morgan fell, down, 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 into the darkness of the city.
And that's where we're going to stop for now, folks. Can Kate and David find their way out of Hunter's Hollow? What dangers will they encounter down in the darkness? And how is Morgan going to survive falling off Kapler Tower? Find out when our story continues. We're taking a break from Things Unseen next week. Mel and I are going to visit my family in Michigan, so I won't have time to put together a regular episode. Instead, I'll be sharing the audio from the Metamorph City Retrospective panel at Balticon 50. This was a fun conversation with me, Christiana Ellis, and Michael Spence, moderated by Doc Coleman. Look for that next week. For now, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,241 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 749 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 46 days without breaking my chain. I'm now up to chapter 27 in The Lost and the Least. Our villain has a name now, and some of the heroes are beginning to learn of his motives. The manuscript is now over 91,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, artist Ben Clifford is putting the finishing touches on this month's bonus artwork. There's a preview up now, and the full artwork should be there in the next few days. You can view it if you're a patron at the $1 a month level or higher. I'm also working on this month's bonus episode, which will drop sometime between now and when I leave for Michigan on Friday. If you're not a patron, signing up for a monthly pledge is the absolute best way to support this show. The funds provided by my Patreon patrons help me pay for things like web hosting, book production, and artwork, and it makes it possible for me to keep bringing you this show, free and without any annoying ads. A $3 a month pledge gets you access to author commentaries, sneak peeks, and other fun stuff. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account, and you can adjust your pledge level or cancel at any time. You can find all of that at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. Hey, Chris. This is Nobilis Reed, calling you from the podcast mobile. I listen to almost all my podcasts in the car. And uh, just finished the most recent episode. And uh, very gratified to see Fisher show up in your story. I think one of the most fun elements of writing in a shared world is when people pick up something you created and then go create something more with it. I have to admit that the image you had of Fisher was not the same as mine, but I had not put a whole lot in when I created him. We did not see much of what he could do in Alive because that point of view character runs away from him almost as soon as he appears. But it's good to see that, and I am in no way displeased that you created something different than what I had in mind because what you created was so much more awesome. So thank you for that nod to Alive and stay on the bright side. Thanks, Nobilis. I knew that I was taking some artistic license in fleshing out the character of Fisher, and one of the things I've most been looking forward to in this podcast is hearing your reactions to how I interpreted him. You'll see more of Fisher a few episodes down the road. And if you like what you've heard so far, I think you'll enjoy what's coming. 
There was a vigorous discussion this week in the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group about the trap that Kate and David got caught in last week. Rosemary said, Wow, David is a complete and total badass. I fall more in love with him every time he appears. Also, damn you cliffhangers! And you are really, really good at creating creepy but fascinating bad guys that I cannot look away from, even though I'm gritting my teeth. Metaphorical staring, literal teeth gritting. I'm high-strung like that. Thanks, Rosemary. My take on Fisher was inspired partly by the Joker, especially the Batman animated series version, and partly by Malcolm McDowell, who is the king of creepy, menacing British actors. And yes, I love when David gets a chance to show off. Paul Perkins said, This was the one sequence that did not make me happy. I just don't believe that Kate and David would respond to an emergency call under those circumstances. The risk to the civilian they were transporting was too high and too obvious. I do have to grant that it's established that Kate sometimes acts on impulse without thinking things through, so on that basis it's not entirely against character. But it's still a version of the trope of heroes walking into a trap because that's what heroes do." It's true. Heroes walking into traps is a heavily used trope, and it's often done in a way that requires the heroes to act dumb, or at least have their guard down to an unrealistic degree. This scene went through a couple of rewrites during the writing process to make Kate and David's behavior as plausible as possible. To make smart people do things they shouldn't, you need a few elements. You have to engage them emotionally so their logic isn't ruling their decision-making. You have to create a state of emergency so they don't have time for proper threat assessment. And you have to create a slippery slope, a situation that looks like it's going to require minimal involvement at first, but which gradually gets the heroes more and more stuck. The emotional engagement comes from the attempted rape. This is one of the most viscerally horrible crimes out there, and for Kate in particular, who sees herself as a protector of the innocent, it's something she can't let go. The emergency comes from it happening right now, right in front of them, so they have only seconds to close in and stop it. The next closest officer is ten minutes away, and that would be far too late. The trickiest part of the trap was the slippery slope, and this is where the vamps really had to do their planning. At first, it looks like it should be easy. Kate and David pull up to the curb, they get the woman safely into the skimmer, and then they deal with her attacker. But instead, the woman quote-unquote mistakes Kate and David for accomplices, and runs into a narrow, confined space. It's riskier now, but now Kate and David are more invested in the situation. It doesn't take much persuasion to get them to follow the chase into the tunnel, whereas if the dispatcher had reported that the attack was inside the tunnel to begin with, our heroes would have known they couldn't take the risk. This happens again once they're inside the tunnel. The suspect stops there, so someone has to stay with him, and someone else has to go get the witness so they can hold him. Now our heroes are separated, but they're thinking it will only be for a minute or two. The woman didn't have that much of a head start, and David's an expert tracker, so it shouldn't have taken long to go get her and bring her back. It's another incremental risk, dragging them down deeper into the pit, making it harder for them to disengage. When Corporal Miles shows up, it lowers Kate's anxiety about being separated from her partner a little. She has backup, and even if he's bureaucratic and annoying, he's still a cop, right? 
Arguing with Miles about procedure distracts Kate from the fact that David is taking a lot longer than he really should be, so she doesn't have the chance to think through it and realize that it's a trap. At least, not until the headless vampire tumbles out of the stairwell. The important thing to remember as a writer is that even smart characters can make bad calls when they're distracted, emotional, and pushed into crisis mode. And, of course, that's true of people in real life as well. There's a lot more to this thread, so head on over to the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group if you want to see what other folks thought of the episode. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help promote it, leave us a review on iTunes or review my books on Amazon. Every bit of good press helps new people find my stories. That's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.